0: Welcome you to another edition of Being Well-Informed. My name is Claudia Barber and I am the host of this podcast, the YouTube version Being Well-Informed where we discuss trending topics of the day. And we are proud to present to you this t- trending topic today on the unconscious bias workplace. And we are so happy to have with us to talk about the unconscious bias in the workplace an expert, and I i really am serious when I say this word expert, Lauren Epstein. Welcome to Being Well Informed.
1: Claudia, thank you so much for having me on your show.
0: Well, uh, you have been doing this for years. And so I feel like I'm a novice, even though I've been practicing law for years, but I feel like I'm a novice at this. So what has happened over uh, the years uh, in the field of unconscious bias and implicit bias in the workplace. And tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got involved with this area.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. So there's been work done on unconscious bias for decades. I think a couple of the new things uh, is that uh, Daniel Kahneman, who wrote the book Fast uh, and Slow Thinking, he, he really was able to look at human brains as they do decision-making and he isolated how we think and what parts of our brains are activated based on certain conditions, which really helps support some of the science around unconscious bias. And uh, the definition of unconscious bias that I use is unconscious not being aware and a bias being a tendency or an inclination. Uh, In the last three or four years, well, particularly since the murder of George Floyd, uh, corporations have jumped in to provide their employees and to create workspaces that have less bias. Uh, there's been a ton of research done, um, Harvard Business Review, Myers-Briggs, uh, not Myers-Briggs, excuse me, um, oh, now it's escaping me. But there's tons of research that organizations that have uh, less bias have greater inclusion, uh, greater diversity, greater equity. And those organizations have higher profitability, greater retention. So aside from a social value, there's also an economic one as
0: well. That's wonderful. So this whole concept of of, uh, implicit bias in the workplace, we can start with something simple like job descriptions. Is there bias in job descriptions?
1: Yeah, actually there is. And uh, the bias that I find is um, sometimes it's gender-based, but often the bias is that the job description was inherited uh, for years or decades and it doesn't actually describe the, the goals, the tasks that someone needs to complete. So from that level, from a functional level, when you read a job description, they often look like laundry lists of skills that you need to have, not what it is that you need to accomplish. And, and what's changed, maybe there was a time when that worked, but what's really changed is that there are not enough employees We're now at a negative birth rate. And if a company wants to hire people, they have to be open to hiring people who have the right competencies and then training them. So that's one of the biggest ones. And then, of course, there's gender bias in some of the terms. Uh, but, um, you know, this, this when, when when I have my clients come to my workshop on removing bias from job descriptions, they're always amazed at like just the words that people have used and they've got, gathered dust over the years.
0: Well, when you think about this whole concept of job descriptions being biased, I, I tend to believe that Some people uh, look at job descriptions and it just scares them away and then like, forget it. You know, I don't even have these skills
1: That's right.
0: and uh, they won't even apply and we're missing out on on great potential.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's 100 percent true. In fact, mostly women, if they don't see themselves in every little detail, they won't apply. And often a lot of job descriptions will have educational requirements and other requirements that aren't actually used for the job. And people at the office that do that don't have those requirements.
0: Mm. That's very interesting. Uh, For example, if we stack the job description with a lot of certifications and uh, um, uh, specialized training, uh, does that scare people away? Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, And particularly with certifications and training, I mean, if you really want to hire people, you'd want to offer that because, one, that's an incentive. Yes. A lot of a lot of jobs, a lot of job descriptions will say we want someone who can do this. And when they look at the resumes, they won't look to give stretch. Like a person should not be a hundred percent fit. They should be maybe 60 or 70% or some percentage less than everything because you know a high performer is going to want to learn something new in their job, in their next job.
0: So how did you, in a sense? Um, you you began, or I actually became introduced to you through your workshops. So how, you, you know, you host unconscious bias workshops and you say they reduce bias in the workplace. How so?
1: So fundamentally, the bias that we focus on uh, is when people are unaware that they're not making uh harmful or poor decisions because they want to, they're just not aware. And by bringing awareness, we can mitigate bias. Uh, One of the tent poles of my work is a study that was done in 2011 of the National Basketball Association. And social scientists looked at the calls that referees were making. And they found that the the referees who were supposed to be unbiased, uh, if their pigmentation was lighter they were calling more fouls on players whose pigmentation was darker. Mm. Referees whose pigmentation was darker were calling more fouls on pigmentation on the player's skin that was lighter. Mm. And they released the report and the NBA didn't do anything. They didn't do any training. The referees didn't do any training. But three years later they did the same study and this statistical bias had disappeared and it disappeared because people became aware. And awareness is the number one antidote to unconscious bias.
0: That's good. That's good. Now you said it's it's the it's the number one antidote. So in the past, let's say decade, we've had many presidential administrations. We've had the Trump administration. We had the Obama administration. And now we have the Biden administration. How has unconscious bias types of workshops changed during those eras?
1: Oh, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question. I, I don't know the answer to that, though. I couldn't give you a good answer.
0: So in some instances, though, I thought that there were some executive orders that uh, were passed to uh, yes. kind of uh, not include diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, in certain types of government trainings.
1: Yes, so uh, actually my mentor, Howard Ross, he was doing work for the federal government. And at the time, this was during the Trump administration, uh, President Trump um, uh, enacted a, a policy, a directive, I think it was executive order, that said that no, no work that teaches people about unconscious bias can occur. And and I think that must have been maybe in, I don't know, 17 or 18. I, I don't remember exactly when, but yeah. The, now, I think the Biden administration has taken that away. Uh, I have federal clients where I'm doing work.
0: That's wonderful and that's good to know. Uh, So you say that also your workshops are data-driven and experiential, in what way?
1: Well, so experiential meaning that people do stuff. So most of the workshop, people are doing activities and those activities are designed where people self-reflect on, they can see their own biases. They can see how biases played a role in their lives. We have about four or five different exercises through the 90-minute workshop, through that that workshop's 90-minute workshop. And so they're doing it. And I'm not telling them that they're biased. I'm not telling them anything. That would be the, the worst thing I could do. They're discovering their own belief system. They're discovering how they see the world and uh, through the lens that, that they see it. Um, so it's experiential in that regard. As far as being data-driven, before and after the workshop, we do a survey. And at the end of the survey, we measure the impact of, uh, of what the workshop has done and Pretty much all the time, I'd say all the time. Uh, there, uh, a participant's ability to handle unconscious bias in the workplace has become better, uh, much better.
0: Now, you mentioned the survey uh, that was done by the referees or the umpires that were watching games, and they 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 made more foul call calls, and and uh, that type of presentation, once the survey is there, once the survey is done, once the statistics are in raw data format, how can you ignore that and kind of do nothing? Although it, it's a good thing, though, you said that the situation changed. Is it not?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, well, I mean, to your first question, I would say there are many things that we as human beings uh, know that we do that may not be in our best interest Mm. i think that's true for every human being uh, that we have habits or actions that don't necessarily support our highest interests and that we'd like to change and i think most human beings have grown and changed a lot of their behaviors as they developed from childhood to adulthood and yet there are still behaviors that are very difficult to change the human mind the human Construct is a very difficult thing for someone to change, and that's designed that way. So a lot of the what what is unconscious bias is part of our nervous system. It's it's controlled by in part the hippocampus and the amygdala, and that most of our nervous system is designed around responding to fear based situations. And this has to do with the fact that when we developed as human beings three hundred thousand years ago. The world was in fact dangerous. It was a very dangerous place to be and now while we don't have those same physical dangers, we still have dangers maybe to emotional harm or psychological harm and our body responds the same way.
0: So there's also this concern that uh, uh, in the workforce, uh, CEOs, what are they saying about how unconscious bias is impacting their workplace.
1: Yeah. So in 2021, I did a study of CEOs and they described unconscious bias in the workplace as an unintended attitude, as a a product of both uh, nature and nurture. And it constitutes uh, a violation of the values of honesty, curiosity, fairness and justice, and that they agreed that bias could be mitigated, but not eliminated.
0: Wow, you said a lot there. You said bias cannot be eliminated.
1: Yeah, because it is a function of how our brains work. And, you know, if you're hiring an accountant, you need to be biased towards hiring an accountant. So bias is a tendency. It's an inclination. It's not a bad thing. We all have bias. Unconscious bias is just how we operate. It's not a bad thing. And uh, in a lot of ways, it can be really good. Like if you're driving down the street and all of a sudden you move your car to the left or to the right, And then a a heartbeat later, you realize, oh, there was a a child in the street or a car coming your way. That is part of unconscious bias. That is part of your fast thinking brain making quick decisions to save you or to save the people around you.
0: I see. So the whole concept of, though, uh, having people in the workforce with bias and uh, let's talk about mitigating bias. I mean, what can employers do to mitigate the bias so that it's, it's not impactful uh, in the wrong way in the workplace?
1: Yeah. So my recommendation is always hire me because the work that I do is, is pretty sound um, and uh, add more time and uh, more quality information when you're making decisions usually bias is most impactful when it's the most important decisions. Hiring decisions, firing decisions, promotions, raises, investments. When you're making a decision that impacts people's lives, that's where you need to add the right amount of time and add the data that is actually accurate and, and has uh, providence.
0: That's a good thing when it comes to hiring and, and firing decisions. Let's Let's again go back to the whole hiring decision aspect and the fact that let's say you have a panel of people asking questions, how can that process be improved or such that it eliminates bias or mitigates bias in the selection process?
1: Sure. Um, I'm not a huge fan of panel interviews. Um, I was in talent acquisition for over 20 years. Not my favorite thing, but the the two things that I recommend, one is using uh, experiential interviewing. And uh, I do workshops for my clients where I teach them how to find specific skills in any job that the candidate, the person applying for the job, can demonstrate that are observable. So if you're hiring a CEO, you might want to have them give a 15-minute presentation to the board about something. And so you'd have them create a few PowerPoint slides and have them show their work. Another tool, and that gets scored, right? So another tool would be scorecards. So you take a, a virtual or real piece of paper and you create a series of questions using the stakeholders of the job. And those questions are then scored like based on one to five. And they agree on what's a five answer, what's a three answer, what's a one answer. And when you have two or three people interviewing somebody using those same questions, instead of a gut feeling, you have a score and that score is another data point. You know, you don't make these decisions based on either one of those, these two examples alone, but it's another data point that allows you to mitigate some bias and make a better hiring decision. And also with scorecards, you know, years later or six months later, you can hire the person that came in second place.
0: Excellent point. Now, the the question though, is you said that you're not a fan of panel interviews. Why is that?
1: It's intimidating uh, it puts people on the defensive I think the interview is the worst place to put somebody on the defensive you're trying to get the best of them you want to get to know them you know why scare them
0: so the so the so the question though is the reverse of, of panel interviews is just having selection and kind of a one-on-one uh, interview well
1: I think one-on-one interviews are good but I think again using experiential interviewing where people are demonstrating their skills, is excellent. So I was hired by a global software company. uh, And on my fourth day, I was told to build recruiting teams in India. And I'd never been to India. So for a month, I Zoom interviewed about 150 recruiters. And I picked my top 15. And I brought them to a city in India. And I was there, and the other vice presidents were there. And I had all those 15 come in and pair up. And they just talked to each other for about five minutes. And then one at a time I had each person stand up and tell us about the person that they had just spoken to. Mm -hmm. So recruiters need to listen and they need to communicate. And this was a way of having them demonstrate both of those skills.
0: Excellent. Excellent. But you also said that uh, it's good to have, for example, scorecards, uh, or you have, let's say, a, a CEO that's being hired do a demonstration. Uh, type of uh, situation, um, you th- th- but that still has to be achieved. Do, do you n- not think th- through panels?
1: Well, again, it could be. I'm just. I'm personally not a fan of panels. It could be. Absolutely. Yeah, I
0: guess. I guess what I'm also
1: contextual. Uh, yeah, I think it's contextual. You know, okay. so depends on the job, depends on the candidate, depends on a lot of different things.
0: Well, for example. In some one-on-one interviews, if you have a biased interviewer who has multiple um, biases, and that person is the gatekeeper, that person may do a lot of elimination of good candidates.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, you'll you you can never completely eliminate that, but again, depending on the context. Um, you may want to have another person after that person speaking to them or coming up with a scorecard criteria where the person actually has to grade each person. And then also a feedback mechanism where super important to have feedback mechanisms where six months and a year down the road, who did you hire and how did it go and who interviewed them? And what were the questions that were asked and what was their score? So you have to validate the process. And I think, you know, you had asked like, Hey, what, what do we do to make sure we're doing it right? Well, yes. you got to have a feedback loop and test these, whatever you're doing, test it. Cause if you're hiring people and you have a regular attrition of a year, you may have a problem in your system, right? I mean, you, that may be a problem. And so to take a look at the system and see where that's what's going on.
0: Let's move to the issue of termination. How do you eliminate bias and terminations?
1: Well, again, it comes with the job description. So the job description should say exactly what it is that that person has to do. So, for example, if I was hiring a baker, the job description might say, bake 100 loaves of bread a day by 8 a.m. And that's one of the descriptions. And so every so often when they do their performance review, hey, have you done that? And you can count them up and you can say, yeah, that person did it. And yet they did. And if they didn't, then that would be a reason for termination. Everyone's job has some quantitative deliverable. There's Someone has to do something and you can count it up. There isn't anybody who doesn't do anything that's not countable. So that's one way to have a measurable uh, um, uh, point to assess someone. And for things that aren't measurable, you want to create something that's measurable. So if it's if it's, uh, you know, how are they getting along with people? Well, if they're not getting along with people, then you might want to measure that as a as a number, right? You know, there's five people and they're only getting along with two and why and have that as a data point as well, but not at the moment of termination. That should be after a week, after two weeks, like that feedback should be in there for the person to know what's going on. Right? There's the whole notion of agile uh, development is really great, but we don't use agile employment. We don't give agile feedback. We wait till six months or a year till everyone's frustrated, and uh, and then you have that waterfall effect where oh here it all is, and the person is you know usually left like hey why didn't anyone tell me you know what what was going on and that's like a performance based hire right so you know that's that 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 happens people and sometimes people aren't a right fit for the job that's always true you have top 10 directors for movies and actors who get fired, you know, and they're the best of the best. And yet they still get fired. Athletes get fired. So you're never going to hire perfect.
0: Well, that's an important point to raise, but when you see statistics of the majority of the people that you fire are of a certain race, how do you change that statistic?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's a, uh, Again, it's all contextual based. But I would I would look at the process that's currently in place and I'd take a like diagram it and take apart all the pieces and look to see where there could be bias. Like where there is not, where people aren't using objective information, right? Objective information that everyone can agree to. Uh, and build those in. Where can we add more objective information that people can agree to? So if somebody has to have a skill, well, how do we have them demonstrate that skill, right? And then you have them do that. And if you have them do that, then you can mitigate bias based on any uh, visible, um, you know, differences between people. And there are very few, actually, visible differences between people. Most diversity is invisible. And, you know, are are you hiring that kind of diversity as well?
0: Understood, understood. You've been so helpful in, in uh, enlightening us about um, uh, unconscious bias in the workplace and kind of unpacking it for us. So, how do we develop and test solutions? You've given us some ideas in hiring and, and termination, but in general, how do we develop and test solutions?
1: Oh, yeah, you're quite welcome. And, and Claudia, this has been a great interview. I really appreciate the room. You've given me uh, the great question. So I'm happy to answer it. So how do we test? So it's really important that we pick a metric, a single metric, whatever it is that matches to the business, and do one thing that's going to move that one metric. And test after a month, two weeks, three weeks, have we moved that metric? And if we're not moving that most important metric, then do something different. right? Do the thing that's going to move that metric that's in alignment with the business and increasing diversity and increasing inclusion and increasing equity, if that's part of your measurement.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, we've been scrolling across our screen, a uh, your website, which is www.lornepstein spelled L-O-R-N-E-E-P-S-T-E-I-N.com. And when we go to that website, what can we have access to? What do we have access to? Sure,
1: well, there's a description of my workshops. Uh, you can download the 2021 bias impact report. Um, I have uh, like 20 links for videos, articles, and books uh, for Black History Month for folks who are I interested. saw
0: that, it was beautiful. Very enlightening, very enlightening.
1: And, and you know that kind of information. Um, and of course, you can reach out to us. We do a lot of different work besides the dozen or so workshops. We have uh, uh, the bias impact report we do for our clients. We also do a report that I, I, I kind of love, which is um, when our clients think that they don't have enough of a certain gender or ethnicity in a job classification, we'll take that data and look in the geographic area and tell them how many people exist of that gender and ethnicity in that job classification so they can compare it to their workforce to see whether they're leading or lagging or on par and what that does is it really helps them focus where it is they're spending their recruiting dollars but also it fends off attacks we don't have enough of these people doing this and so that's that's really bad so that's you know it's one of my favorite kind
0: of things you have been so helpful and insightful was uh, in dealing with this topic of unconscious bias in the workplace. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Mr. Lauren Epstein, for appearing on our podcast today. We appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. Thank
1: you, Claudia. And tune in to Being Well-Informed.